0: Belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. This week's message is called Wine or No Wine. The teacher is Becky Irvin, and the location is Vespers Point, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, Like Alex said, my name is Becky, and I'm on the teaching team here at Grace. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I want to start this morning by acknowledging that we are meeting on stolen land of Osage, Caddo, and Quapaw people, Um, and this land was stolen by white colonizers who likely identified as disciples of Christ. Um, I think it's important to hold space for that for a minute in order to um, be open to the ways that the church has perpetuated harm in history uh, and also open to like how we can heal from that as well. So I grew up in a Tea Party conservative Southern Baptist home in a small town in Texas, population 1200. Uh, I used to tease my hair in the morning and like spray it with aquanet and walk through the halls of my high school being like the higher the hair, the closer to heaven. Uh, The Lord's Prayer takes me back to Friday night football games and like reciting that prayer because God has a plan and hopefully that plan is we're going to win tonight. Words like worth the weight and submission are incredibly triggering for me. My high school was 50% Hispanic students and there was almost zero representation of that demographic in my church's congregation. Um, let alone in the leadership or the elders, um, where the only demographic represented was cisgender, straight, white men. Sunday morning sermons were leveraged to encourage people to support right-wing politics and position Christians and the church as victims in a culturally misguided world. I didn't really even know how to say that until after Laura's teaching last week, which I highly recommend if you missed it, uh, to go back and listen to it. It's also like a great lead-in to what we're talking about today. And unfortunately, some of the most blatant acts of white supremacy, sexism, homophobia, and more, I witnessed by the same people who plucked verses out of the book of Romans in order to seek and save the lost. When I think about the Christians I grew up surrounded by, unfortunately, the words that come to mind are dismissive, apathetic, cognitive dissonance, behavioral blind spots, and judgment. So when John Ray asked me if I would teach Romans 14 and 15, I was incredibly hesitant Um, because Romans is not a safe space for me. It's been abused. And for what? To appease white American guilt, Um, to fuel this white savior complex that everyone in my church had, myself included, I think part of the reason it's so triggering and so painful to go back to this book in particular is because I too perpetuated these oppressive systems and the ideals that uphold them for most of my life. And I am still unlearning these things. So I was really clear with John Ray, I said, Look, I'll teach, but I bring a lot more Brene Brown vibes than I do pastoral vibes. And if you don't know who Brene Brown is, she's like the leading researcher in the world on shame and vulnerability. She has amazing podcasts and books, so crack you wide open. Um, And John Ray graciously responded, somewhere in the Bible is a Venn diagram where Brene Brown and Pastor overlap. Like, okay, it must be true if you're saying it. Um, so, I wanted to start by being super transparent with you. Like, the book of Romans is really triggering for me. Um, but thankfully, this church and the teaching team at Grace have shown me that this is a safe space. And that's why I feel comfortable getting up here to teach today. That said, um, my prayer this morning is that you will receive truth. And so I want to start with reading the passage. That way, if nothing else, there's at least some truth in this message, right? If God willing, you black out everything else except for the scripture passage, that's perfectly okay with me. Um, So I'm going to begin in Romans 14. Um, This passage to me was really powerful when I read it aloud, so uh, do what you need to do if you prefer to read along or if you just want to close your eyes and listen. um, That's great. Now receive the one who is weak in the faith and do not have disputes over differing opinions. One person believes in eating everything, but the weak person eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not despise the one who does not, and the one who abstains must not judge the one who eats everything, for God has accepted him. Who are you to pass judgment on another servant? Before his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day holier than other days, and another regards them all alike. Each must be fully convinced in his own mind The one who observes the day does it for the Lord. The one who eats, eats for the Lord because he gives thanks to God. And the one who abstains from eating abstains for the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and none dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he may be the Lord of both the dead and the living. But you who eat vegetables only, why do you judge your brother or sister? And you who ate everything, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says says the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to God. Therefore, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, we will not pass judgment on one another, but rather determine never to place an obstacle or a trap before a brother or sister. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean in itself. Still, it is unclean to the one who considers it unclean. For if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy by your food someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you consider good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God does not consist of food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For the God who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by people. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for building up one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. For although all things are clean, It is wrong to cause anyone to stumble by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have, keep to yourself before God. Blessed is the one who does not judge himself by what he approves. But the man who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not do so from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. But we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build for it is good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but just as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in former times was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we may have hope. Now may the God of endurance and comfort give you unity with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Receive one another then, just as Christ also received you, to God's glory. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the Father's And thus the Gentiles glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, because of this, I will confess you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praises to your name. And again it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and the one who rises to rule over the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when I first read this text, I was like, okay, some people eat meat, some people don't. Who cares? Why are they? <laughs> why is this a big deal? And um, this is why it's good that like we have a whole teaching team Uh, Because the teaching team was like, well, actually, Becky, that's like a really important piece of context. (laughs) Um, So the Jews, um, at the time in Rome, there were all these house churches, and they were likely segregated between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews um, were still abiding by Mosaic law, and in in their... world and their mind and their beliefs, like their core beliefs, if they were to eat meat, it was like a matter of life and death, because meat was only offered to idols. Uh, And then the Gentiles, obviously, in a different camp, um, a different set of beliefs. But what we're talking about here is not like Vegans versus not vegans, this is like deeply held values. Um, You think about like values in your life that you are not willing to budge on, it's like on par with that. So um, I'm gonna tell you a story. The summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I was offered an internship at the church that I was working at and this woman by the name of Deanne Salsky invited me to live in her guest bedroom for free for the summer. Um, she was married and had a daughter and I accepted and we had an incredible summer together. Um, and it was very clear after a few days of living at the Salski residence that every day at five o'clock we hosted or we attended happy hour somewhere in the neighborhood. And you might be like, really every day? I Really every day? This was sacred time. It didn't matter if you were 15 and just got home from school and volleyball practice. It didn't matter if you were 65. It didn't matter if you showed up empty handed or with a wheel of cheese. It didn't matter if you preferred red, white, or Miller light. You were invited and you were wanted at happy hour. This time in my life was also a very fragile time. Um, It would actually be the start of a crisis of faith that would go on for about five years. And I remember one night sitting on Dan's back porch during happy hour, and thinking, I wish that church felt like this. I wish so because the church I grew up in resembled something much closer to this description as written by Jamie Wright, who is the author of a book called The Very Worst Missionary. Church was like a club. The rules of the club were simple. Dress this way, Use these words, but do not use those words. Go here on Sunday morning and there on Wednesday night. Be appalled by this and this and that and them, but especially them. Get indignant about so-and-so and offended by such and such. And above all, act like everything is okay. Even if it's definitely not, because you have jesus and jesus makes your life pretty (laughs) the good christians conform to these rules without question and when they talked about maturing in their faith it seems like what they meant was obeying the rules with more consistency and breaking the rules less often to sit and stay was their end game and I thought it was supposed to be mine. I don't know about you, but one of these two situations, Deanne's happy hours or church club, feels like a place that the gospel can flourish. The other one sounds deeply misguided, void of direction, shallow and exclusive. And when I say a place where the gospel flourishes, I don't necessarily mean the gospel of salvation, where we gotta get people to say a prayer, and then, like, we save them from hell. I mean something where a gospel where we're working towards a world where everyone can experience joy and peace. And I don't think that we can get there if we're not also dismantling systems of oppression and inequality. Over the years while I was in college, Deanne and I would spend many, many happy hours together, and I have always since then tried to maintain this demeanor of openness and welcoming to everyone that she modeled for me and I wish that the problems of the world could be solved at happy hours. If that was the case though, Deanne and I probably would have taken care of everything a really long time ago. There's so much you can learn about other people and even about yourself during a meal. The places where we break bread are also the places that we can build bridges. But. If the if the gospel is confined to these spaces alone. We'll just go back. To being in these like clicky religious groups who all we do is like talk in circles and give ourselves confirmation bias and continue to perpetuate these systems that if you hold privilege, you're likely already contributing to. The real work begins when you leave. Kind of like going to therapy. When you leave therapy, you actually have to integrate the therapist's suggestions. The hardest time is getting from one appointment to the next. And those appointments can become like really sacred times of growth, The real work happens outside of that. There have been so many eye-opening moments for me that happened during a meal, some of them completely unexpected. And I'm sure a lot of you have experienced the same thing. What's the first thing that you do when you need to repair a broken relationship or talk through a disagreement? You might Likely ask someone to join you for dinner. Meals are a place where we can have eye opening moments and progressive dialogue as long as everyone at the table feels wanted and heard. Now, I warned you that I bring a lot more Brene Brown vibes than I do pastoral vibes. So I'm going to share with you three things that help me do the work of dismantling oppressive systems um, outside of the meal times and the happy hours and the conversations, the times that it's easy, right? Uh, and I wanna be clear that as a person who holds many forms of privilege, I contribute to and benefit from these systems. And so to dismantle them, is uncomfortable. And only you can exercise your agency and convene with God to determine if these suggestions will work for you as well. So number one is practice precision of language. When is it appropriate to use racism versus white supremacy? What is the difference between gender and sex? Do the teachers and people that you learn from identify as activists or abolitionists? Are you comfortable using pronouns like they and them if those are someone's preferred pronouns? Listen to this quote from Austin Channing Brown, who is a black pastor, um, and don't miss the precision of language here. I continue to be drawn toward the collective participation of seeking good even when that means critiquing the institution I love for its commitment to whiteness. My story is not about condemning white people about but about rejecting the assumption, sometimes spoken, sometimes not, that white is right. White is closer to God, holy, chosen, the epitome of being. Practice precision of language. Number two, don't internalize anything. And this one's really hard. Most of us benefit from multiple forms of privilege and the process of unlearning guarantees that we will make mistakes. When someone confronts your mistake, thank them and self-correct. It's not about me. This is about working towards a world where everyone can experience joy and peace. Don't internalize anything. Number three, put what you're learning into practice. When I was in graduate school at the University of Arkansas, I was the grad assistant for the outdoor recreation program. My job was to train college students to take other college students into the backcountry to do things like rock climbing, backpacking, whitewater kayaking, ice climbing. Um, lots of very technical and risky skills involved. And every semester, I would make the schedule of trips that we were going to offer, give it to the students. And they would write down what trips they preferred to lead. And the more technical the trip was, the more you got paid. Uh, And then they would turn in those preferences to myself and my supervisors. And we would go through and make the schedule and then give it back to them. And everyone got like one to two trips a semester. And it never failed that um, every semester someone would come to me and they would be like, Becky, why don't I get to lead the rock climbing trip? I went to all the trainings. I got my first aid certification. How come I don't get to lead? I've done everything you've asked. And I would be like, but bro, you never rock climb. <laughs> like, I get it, and I'm super thankful that you've like invested the time and the money to do the trainings and the certifications, but like, I need to see you've gone rock climbing outside like at least 10 times <laughs> before you can lead a rock climbing trip. And it's kind of the same way when we're unlearning and dismantling oppressive, oppressive systems, so much so that the books and the podcast and the TED Talks can become like a soothing balm for those of us who benefit from different forms of privilege. But if we don't take that into the world and begin to apply that knowledge and integrate it into the ways that we live our lives, we won't see progress. So this concept of doing the work is really trendy right now. you can follow thousands of Instagram accounts that will give you all of the information that you need. But this begged me to answer the question, did Jesus do the work the way that we think about doing the work? And One thing that I love about Grace Church is that we're always encouraging this ever-expanding imagination of who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Um, Ever since I was young, I always imagined Jesus as a disruptor and someone who was overtly conscious of the powers at play. Someone who was acutely aware of every logical fallacy and every argument. But I've never known if that was true or if that's like me projecting what I want Jesus to be. Um, And I never heard anyone else. Talk or write about Jesus that way until I read this book. The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd. This book is a fictional story about the wife of Jesus. What would she be like? Where would she be from? What would she believe? And I want to read to you a passage from this. It's shorter than the passage that we read in Romans. Where Jesus has just been baptized. And realized it's time for him to go and begin what we refer to as his ministry. Um, And he tells his wife, and this is how the scene plays out. He became quiet, searching my face. A feeling of loss coursed through me. I would go with him to God's revolution, of course, but things between us wouldn't be the same. My husband belonged to God now. All of I rose and with great effort said, you have my blessing. The tautness about his lips slackened. He held me to him. I waited for him to say, you'll come with me. We'll follow John together. Already, I was thinking how I would persuade Aunt Yaltha to join us. The silence hardened. And myself, I said, I will take you home. Confused, I shook my head, but I wanted to object, but nothing came from my mouth. He seems to leave me behind. I'm sorry, Anna, he said. I must take up this mission without you. You can't leave me in Nazareth, I whispered. The hurt of saying these words was so great, I felt my legs sinking back toward the ground, before i join john i must go into the wilderness for a time to ready myself for what's to come i can only do that alone after that then i'll accompany you i heard the desperation in my voice how i hated the sound of it there are no women among john's disciples you saw this as i did but you of all people, you would not exclude me? No, I would take you if I could. He raked his fingers through his beard, but this is John's movement. The reason that the prophets have no female disciples, and since I cut him off, I've heard these reasons tenfold. Traipsing about the countryside exposes us to dangers and hardships. We cause dissension among the men, We are temptations. We are distractions. My anger swelled, and I was glad for it. It drove away the hurt. It's thought we're too weak to face danger and hardship, but do we not give birth? Do we not work day and night? Are we not ordered about and silenced? What are robbers and rainstorms compared to these things? He said, Little Thunder, I am on your side. I was going to say... The reason that prophets have no female disciples are flawed reasons. Yet you will follow John anyway. How else can we hope to alter this wrong? I will do what I can to convince him. Give me time. I'll come back for you in the winter or early spring before Passover. I looked at him. I'd held the world too close and it had slipped from my arms. I love Jesus written by a woman. So good. Um, Brene Brown also interviewed Sue Kid Kidd about this particular book, and you can find it on her podcast, Unlocking Us. <sighs> Obviously, it's incredibly imaginative to put words in the mouth of Jesus. But it also gives me hope that Jesus could have had conversations like this. And it inspires me to speak up when I see injustices in the world. Something that is incredibly challenging for me is to check myself when I begin to loathe people who disagree with me and I have a massive capacity for hatred (laughs) for people who disagree with me. Um, it's, It's a deep, dark chasm in my character. But if there is one place that I can see the humanity in all of us, if there's one place that I can find common ground with the person who has the most opposing beliefs as myself, it's at a table with food and drink. So a question was posed in our teaching team this week. It was like, What else is there to do with people that we disagree with besides break bread? And I didn't figure out the answer to that this week. But I think that breaking bread is the best place to start. In the learning guide this week, you'll find Like a bunch of the stuff that you're used to seeing, and then if you scroll to the bottom, there's a link that says Becky's Guide to Hosting. I've taken the wisdom that I learned from Deanne and shared it with you. And it's not like one of those food blogs where you have to read the blogger's entire life story to get to the recipe. I tried to get straight to the point. Um, There's a super easy recipe for baked garlic-free a non-alcoholic beverage option that I always have when I have people over, and then my favorite $3 bottles of wine. I also included playlist suggestions of crowd pleasers for background music because I think that's a very important part of getting people to sit down, relax, and open up. So I'm not going to challenge you to go find someone that you seriously disagree with and invite them to dinner. But maybe it's time for us to have dinner with the neighbor or the people down the street that we've never met or the people that you wave to all the time. And if dinner is too much commitment, just make it a drink after work. Ask people to bring food so it's not all on you. I'm going to go ahead and invite um, Justin and Jennifer up and then also the worship team to come back up. I think this is the most appropriate thing that we could do right now. Uh, I titled this teaching Wine or No Wine, Reflections on Dinner and doing the work. And I think that, sorry, dinner differences and doing the work. So um, as you receive the elements, maybe take this time to have those reflections yourself. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at GraceChurchMWA.org. Grace and peace.